I say it just about every week, but it is good to be in the house of the Lord today. This morning, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move quickly here because I got, I got some stories to tell. I got, I've, I got an extra hour to preach, right? I could just, just keep going, right? No, I'd, but I, <laughs> I, um, I want us to start with this statement that I think you know is true, but sometimes it just needs to be said. Rumors often do not equal truth, right? Rumor does not often equal truth. Another way to say that is, please, don't believe everything you hear. Uh, I, I was once a member of, uh, of the media. I was a sports writer. And in the sports world, there are always rumors. So-and-so might get traded. So-and-so might be injured. This athlete is up to something good or bad. Or who are they dating? And all those things you've got to deal with, in, even in sports media. And I had an editor who was wonderful, and he he would often say this, it's more important to be right than to be first. The pressure in the media, at least, is to have the the story, to break the story, to be the first, to have it out there. But if you're the first, but if you're wrong, if you don't have it right, now you're just spreading misinformation. You're doing the opposite of what you are supposed to be doing. It is more important to be right than to be first. Rumor can be a problem. In 1897, a journalist contacted Mark Twain in hopes that Mark Twain would confirm or deny a rumor that had been spreading about him. And the rumor was that Mark Twain had died. <laughs> and Mark Twain's response to this journalist, it's kind of famous now, it's, the report of my death is greatly exaggerated. Earlier this week, I did not have this part of my story, but I think it fits so well. Earlier this week, um, Christine Peters um, ended up in the hospital, and uh, she's dealing with some things and and some anemia and and maybe blood pressure. She's doing better now. She's out of the hospital. She's home, but but talked to her on the phone yesterday, and uh, hopefully she's watching right now. Hi, Christine. We love you. Um, uh, She called me just to make sure that I knew she's, she's... Doing better, but still not 100%, still feeling kind of weak, and so she was going to stay home today, and, and she wouldn't be at church. But she wanted to make sure I knew she was not staying home to watch the game. <laughs> of course, the Chiefs are playing, right? They might be wrapping up right now, I don't know. But a rumor might have started, where's Christine Peters? Why isn't she here? What is she do? She wanted to get ahead of those rumors. Rumor is not always true, Right? One more example, in the early days of this school year, my daughter came to me with a problem that she had at school. Now, she had just started kindergarten, she's in her kindergarten year, and one morning she seemed to be upset about something, and so she came to me and she told me what was wrong. And she said, at school, I want my egg to crack on the old lady. I want my egg to crack on the old lady. I had her repeat that. What? And she doubled down. She went even further. She said, everybody else has cracked their egg on the old lady, but my egg hasn't cracked on the old lady. I want my egg to crack on the old lady. She was very firm about this. And in my head, I'm saying that cannot mean what I think it means. But my daughter's not in the habit of making stuff up either, 
And she was greatly concerned about this, as if she was missing out on all these other kids cracking eggs on on some poor old lady in their classroom. What is going on? And so I decided, well, I'm going to take Hazel to school, and this morning we're going to get to the bottom of this. And so I'm walking her into school, but then as I'm walking into the building, I'm realizing what I'm about to do. I'm about to go to a teacher, a well-respected, good teacher, my daughter's kindergarten teacher, and I'm, not, I'm about to ask her, why does my daughter want to crack an egg on an old lady? <laughs> what are you doing in this classroom? And so I did. <laughs> and Hazel's teacher looks at me as if I had just asked her, where is she hiding the aliens from Jupiter in her classroom? Like, and, and, and the look also kind of was like, I have 20 kindergartners to deal with, and now I have 20 kindergartners and a very weird man in my classroom to deal with. And she wasn't wrong about that, but I didn't want to be weird about this, you know. And so I look at Hazel, and the teacher looks at Hazel, and and we say, can you show us what you mean? What are you talking about? And Hazel does not look like she's been caught in some kind of fib, you know, or, or she's making something up. With full confidence, Hazel walks into the classroom, marches us around the bookcase, points at the board in front of the classroom, and there she stops and she waits for us to understand what she's talking about. On the board, this is a smart screen, okay? It's a smart screen and it's a home page from a website. And it's a smart board that's connected to a computer, and so it has a home page there. And that home page is showing the name of every kid, the first name of every kid, every kindergartner in that class. And, and so above each name is a broken eggshell, okay? And above, above each name is this broken eggshell, and except for Hazel. And Hazel, her name is up there, but it's a full egg. Her egg has not cracked. And that's when the teacher says, oh, oh, Hazel's egg hasn't cracked yet. And you can see all the other kids, their eggs have cracked on this smart board. And then she says, this smart board is kind of old now. And sometimes we have to wait a bit before it will refresh or update with what we're trying to use it for. And so when they're using the smart board in class and it's lagging behind, it's not refreshing quickly, the teacher will say, you know, she's an old lady. And let's just wait on the old lady. It's okay, old lady, you can can come along. And she speaks to it as if it needs just a little bit more time. Let's wait on this old lady to update. We'll see it on the screen. That was the old lady. The school system uses this app on a phone, on your smartphone, you get your smartphone, and it's called Class Dojo. Do you know about Class? I'm the last one to learn about Class Dojo. You know about Class Dojo. Great app. You download it on your phone, and the teacher can communicate with you. She could post photos of what they're doing or their assignments or grades. Or, there's really cool things you can do. And I thought, oh, that's neat. What I didn't know is that you can have an account for your child who is represented by like an avatar or this cartoon character that you can personalize and you can you know, put a different colored shirt on them or, or their eyes or smile or hairstyle or whatever and you could personalize all that and that is your, your student's character that shows up 
on the screen. But I hadn't done that yet because I'm 40 years old. And when I was in kindergarten, we didn't have smart board and smartphone apps. We had chalk. Right? And if we were fancy, we had this thing called an overhead projector, and you could write on it, and it would beam it up on the screen, except I'm left-handed. So if I wrote on it, I just got this, right? I just got ink all over my hand, and then the only way to clean it is with like a generic kind of Windex, and so my hand would smell like a generic kind of Windex all day long. And so that, that's what I had. I sound old, I know. <laughs> I also walked to school in the snow uphill both ways. No. But... But we didn't have any of that, and so I didn't, didn't know anything. And so we went from, I want my egg to crack on the old lady, <laughs> to, oh, I've got to create an avatar on a smartphone app so the aging smart board can show it to my daughter's classmates, and she can be proud that her egg cracked on the old lady. It's new technology to me. The technology is so... I'm so old that the new technology is now old technology that we call an old lady, I guess. <laughs> rumor. <laughs> Misunderstanding. And we know rumor often does not equal truth, and sometimes we just need to say, can you show me what you're talking about? I know there's something I'm missing here. I just need some clarity. Sometimes it's good to get everybody in the room and let's set the record straight. Or maybe there's a few things we need to get out in the open and make sure, hey, I heard this about you. Is that right? Is there more to the story? What am I missing here? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has spent the majority of his ministry out in the country, out by the lake. And I know sometimes we say, what happens at the lake stays at the lake. Well, word has gotten back from the lake, from the Sea of Galilee, what Jesus has been doing. The religious leaders and the city dwellers and the Roman officials, the ones who are in the big city of Jerusalem, they keep hearing these rumors. What is going on out there? Who is this guy? There's this teacher from a little old small town, Nazareth, and he's saying some things, and he's doing some things, and everywhere he goes, there is an uproar. There is an impact that's being made. What is going on with this guy? And so they say, let's get this guy here. Let's set the record straight. Let's get him on the record and see what we're dealing with. It is time to make this official, maybe even in a court of law. So turn with me to Mark chapter 15. The religious leaders have done that. They have hauled Jesus in. They have gone and found him from some nefarious ways, but they have hauled him in, and now he's standing trial. And last week, we, or two weeks ago, we, we saw, you know what, the, the religious leaders are getting together, and they're asking some questions and trying to figure some things out. And, and Jesus replies a little bit, but not, not a whole lot. But they don't have full authority to do what they've decided needs to be done. They have condemned Jesus to death. But they can't do that themselves, so they have to get the real power holders involved. It's time to go to the local leaders of the Roman Empire, the oppressors, the bully who was in charge 
of the land. So that's where we're headed. In Mark chapter 15, verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. At daybreak, the chief priests with the elders, legal experts, and the whole Sanhedrin formed a plan. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replied, that's what you say. The chief priests were accusing him of many things. Pilate asked him again, aren't you going to answer? What about all these accusations? But Jesus gave no more answers so that Pilate marveled. During the festival, Pilate released one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. A man named Barabbas was locked up with the rebels who had committed murder during an uprising. The crowd pushed forward and asked Pilate to release someone, as he regularly did. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of jealousy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate replied, Then what do you want me to do? with the one you call the king of the Jews. They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? What what wrong has he done? They shouted even louder, crucify him. Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd, so he released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus whipped, then handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole company of soldiers They dressed him in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They saluted him, hey, king of the Jews. Again and again, they struck his head with a stick. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Well, so much for setting the record straight. Rumors, threats, misunderstandings. You know, if you haven't noticed in our journey through the Gospel of Mark, there are not many pages left. We've been on this journey a long time, since January, and here we are now coming toward the end. And now at this point, we've left behind all the sermons, the parables, the miracles, the teachings... Jesus has lived his entire ministry in public here for all to see. Don't forget the very first chapter of Mark. It tells us what Jesus is proclaiming. Chapter 1, verse 15, now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. In the very first chapter, here comes God's kingdom, Jesus says. And the rest of the book, this is what God's kingdom is going to look like. It's what it looks like when it breaks into this world. So what is God's kingdom like? Jesus says, all through the Gospel of Mark, it's miracles. It is freedom for the captives. Deliverance from evil. Can you use some deliverance from evil today? That's what the kingdom of God is. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the hungry are fed, the sick are healed. That is what life is like in the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord for God's miracles. There's teachings also in the kingdom of God. Mercy and grace and forgiveness and peace. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Jesus has been teaching. Praise God for for these teachings in the kingdom of God. 
parables as well. The kingdom of God is a mustard seed. It starts out small and grows. It's seed that's scattered everywhere, and only those ready to receive it will produce fruit. It's a landowner who, a landowner who comes to collect from those he has hired to care for the land, these parables that are timeless, ageless, they transcend just the setting and go to every era and every time and every culture. They make sense and they communicate to everyone what the kingdom of God is like. It's big. It's vast. So many good things. That is what God's kingdom is like. But then here is the issue we're confronting in today's passage. The kingdom of God that Jesus has brought with him did not appear in a vacuum. It did not enter a world that was an empty space, a world that did not already have kingdoms and empires and worldviews. Those were already there. Ways of living that had certain values, certain ways in which we live our lives. So this kingdom of God is introduced by Jesus, and it is radically different than the empires and kingdoms of this world that have other values, values for power and control and wealth and influence and violence. These are the ways of the world, and it's so different from the ways of the kingdom of God. And now the rulers of the earthly kingdoms want to get on the record what Jesus is up to, what he's proclaiming, what, this, what is this kingdom about again? What does it value? They've heard the rumors. And it's becoming evident that this kingdom, this kingdom of God, is going to be disruptive to their ways. It has different values. And so where we're seeing now in this story is three different ways in which there are responses to the kingdom of God. First, we have the religious leaders. Their trial was back in chapter 14. And it became evident they weren't interested in listening to Jesus very much. They were interested in getting rid of him, of stopping him, of silencing him. Why? Because what did they value? They valued the status quo, meaning keeping things the same not wanting to change. An idea that says, let's do the best we can without making any major change. Let's hold on to the law. The Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, these religious leaders loved it. And let's make, sure, make Scripture the most important thing rather than actually reading the Scripture and seeing what Scripture reveals as the most important thing. I'm about to say something that might be controversial. In fact, it probably would be. I don't know that all churches would say this. The Bible is not the most important thing. The Bible is not the most important thing. Now, before you begin, I used to say, before you write that email and send it to me, now I know, you don't write an email and send it to you, you just leave and you go find another church that, that believes what you want to believe and, and whatever. But if I had to say the Bible is not the most important thing, I know that sounds controversial. I know it sounds crazy to hear a pastor say that. But here's how I can say that. I read that in the Bible. Stick with me here. The Bible tells us specifically what is the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. What is it? It's Jesus. Jesus. He says it. In John chapter 14, verse 6, it does not say Scripture or the law or the Bible is the way and truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Scripture. No. 
Jesus is the one who says that. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Bible does not say that the Bible is the most important thing. The Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. The Bible points to Jesus. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the one the Bible reveals to us as the only one worthy of our worship, Jesus Christ. Now, I love this book. It's the Word of God for the people of God. It's for us. Are we supposed to then just throw it? Just get rid of it? No. No, but we're also not supposed to worship it. We have to be careful here because this is exactly what some seem to be tempted to do these days is to take this and throw it out, to just exchange the Bible for maybe a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And I've, I've worn those before. But the only way then we can answer what would Jesus do is not to look to Scripture but to look to our own understanding and use our best guess. So, in those ways, maybe we can stay a little more relevant or be non-offensive or just keep things the way they are. But no. Let's look at the words of Jesus again. This time, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Don't even begin to think that I have come to do away with the law and the prophets. Don't even begin to think that I, Jesus, have come to do away with the law and the prophets. I haven't come to do away with them, but to fulfill them. Matthew five seventeen. The law is not the most important thing. The fulfillment of the law is the most important thing. And who came to fulfill the law? It is Jesus. The religious leaders in Mark chapter 14 and 15 have been so focused on following the law that they lost sight on following the one whom the law reveals as Messiah and Savior of the world. Jesus Christ. Almost as if it's a job security problem. There is coming a day, and I pray for the day, when you will not need your pastor anymore. And I'll be out of a job. And I'm just fine with it. I love being your pastor. You're good people. Some of you are crazy, but so am I. We're in, the, in this together, huh? But there's coming a day where you not need me as your pastor or anyone else as your pastor because Jesus Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. There's coming a day when we will not need ministries to feed the hungry or clothe those in need or comfort those who are grieving because one day there will be no more hunger and no more poverty. And because one day there will be no more grief, there will be no more loss. Imagine Imagine if that day were coming and we knew of it and we knew it was just about here and our response as the church was to reject that day because we love our ministry so much. To prevent that day from coming because we value our blessing box or the love store or grief share or fill in your ministry because we value those ministries more than we value the day of redemption and new creation and Jesus' arrival. We are not like that. But that is the sin of the religious leaders right here. They had built a religious structure that forgot they were waiting for a Messiah, a Savior, so much so that when Jesus showed up, they were not interested. They didn't realize who he was. 
In fact, they weren't at all that interested in giving him a fair chance. They shut him down with deception, lies, false testimony. And now, in verse 1, a plan. They formed a plan. And this is fascinating to me. That plan involved partnering with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a huge part of the problem to begin with. Church family, don't ever become so accepting of the problems of evil in this world that you prefer to settle for how things are now rather than accept the inevitable change that comes when the kingdom of God breaks into this world. Because here's the result of the religious leaders' failure to accept the change that was coming. They had to give up their power and control. They so badly wanted to hold on to their power and control, they wouldn't give that up to Jesus. And so what did they do? They gave their power and control to Rome, to the empire, the secular leader, their oppressor, Pilate. They could have given up their power and control to Jesus, the Messiah. No, they wouldn't do that. So in order to eliminate the threat of change from Jesus, they gave up their authority to Pilate. Man. I hope we never grow so settled in this world that we're unwilling to give it up when the kingdom of God breaks into our world. So now we have Pilate, starting in verse 2. It is interesting that Pilate seems to be actually the most level-headed one in, in this story. He's rational. He actually gives Jesus a chance. He actually listens. He's wise enough even to discern the motives of the religious leaders and those who don't want to accept Jesus as king. He kind of figures out what's going on here. And he can't find anything wrong that Jesus has done. Verse 14, what wrong has he done, Pilate asked. He can't figure it out on his own. But here's Pilate's problem. He did have the power and control and authority to put a stop to this nonsense. He could weed out rumor. He could discover truth. And he saw that Jesus was a threat to the religious leaders, yes, but he did not deserve death. And so Pilate could have spared Jesus. But he gave his power and control over to someone else. The crowds. Verse 15, Pilate wanted to satisfy the crowd, not satisfy the truth, not satisfy justice, satisfy the crowd. It is such a temptation, especially for leaders today, to make decisions based on what they perceive might be the most popular thing to do. Politicians will do some crazy things. They will vote for or against legislation or partner with other politicians if it means they can fundraise and get a boost in the polls, whatever decision they make. They will not make a decision unless they know the implications for their poll numbers and their fundraising. What is popular is not always what is right. And our leaders must recognize this. Followers of Christ must recognize this. I've shared this before, but I think it's so important. It's the book of James. James chapter 4, verse 17 says it this way. It is a sin when someone knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. 
James 4.17, it is a sin when someone knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. Pilate knew the right thing to do. He had discerned what was happening, what was going on, but he caved into the crowds and an innocent man was crucified because of it, was condemned. Hope we never give in to the crowd. Don't give in to just what's popular, especially when it means we're sacrificing truth and justice and what is right. Then we have the crowd. I've heard it said before, we often believe in the God we want rather than the God we need. It is far easier to dream up the ideal God in our own minds rather than do the actual work of studying and learning and growing with the one true God revealed to us, first and foremost in Scripture, but then also in reason, tradition, experience, all gifts from God. I'll remind you of a, um, someone you may have heard of, Thomas Jefferson. Have you heard of the Jefferson Bible? Thomas Jefferson went through his Bible and began to cut out passages that he didn't agree with or didn't want to be in there. And he cut some out and he copied some and he pasted some and he got in at, at the end it came together. And what Thomas Jefferson's Bible looked like was no mention of miracles at all. No mention of anything supernatural. No mention of even the resurrection. The Jefferson Bible only has Jesus' teachings. Love one another. Love God. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those types of things. Great teachings. Wonderful. Very important teachings. But that's all that was important to Thomas Jefferson. That was his Bible. He thought the teachings were good, but didn't want to bother with the miracles and angels and resurrection because that was just too hard to believe. Jesus is not a good teacher, not just a good teacher. He's the Savior of the world. And for the crowds, stirred up by the chief priests, they did the same thing. They chose the Savior they wanted rather than the Savior they needed. Do you know who they wanted? Barabbas. What did Barabbas show them? Barabbas was a man willing to do whatever it takes to win. In fact, he would kill for it. He'd overthrow Rome. He would lead even with violence. In order to overthrow Rome, the oppressor, and the crowd thought, that's what we need. We need someone to defend the faith. We need someone to violently overthrow the bullies. But was that the way of Jesus? The way of Jesus was peace and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And what we're about to see in the coming weeks, suffering and sacrifice and even death on behalf of of others. That is Jesus Christ, and that is the Savior we need. They didn't want Jesus. They wanted Rome to be overthrown. And if Jesus would get them there, then they would follow Jesus. But when it became evident that Jesus would not accomplish their goals or agenda, they shifted their allegiance to someone who would, Barabbas, the fake Savior. 
Church family, I use this phrase a lot. I'll use it again. We as a church are at our worst when we are not willing to change when the kingdom of God brings about change. When we are not willing to do what's right even when it's unpopular. And when we are not willing to follow Jesus because of who he is rather than because of what he can do for us. And the result kind of flips our logic on its head. The one who is meant to save us gets rejected. But this is important. The rejection does not lead to Jesus' downfall. Actually, we'll get to the end and the Savior ends up just fine. The rejection leads to the downfall of those who rejected Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God even when it is so different from any other way to live in this world? And the religious leaders who were supposed to be the ones to live by example would just hold on to the status quo. It's a threat. It's a change. We can't do that. So let's give our power and control over to Rome, over to the ways of the world, over to Pilate. And Pilate... A slave. He, he thinks he's the leader. He is a slave to the masses. He's a slave to just whatever is popular. He cannot make his own decision that he knows is right for fear of what the crowds would do, what they would think of him. He's a slave. And then are we willing to follow Jesus rather than Barabbas? Are we willing to follow the one true Savior or the Savior we think we want? The Savior that will accomplish my agenda, <laughs> my desires, my wants. Or a Jesus who will sacrifice and suffer even for those who don't want him, who might even reject him, he will sacrifice anyway. just a moment, I'm going to offer a word of prayer. Um, I will tell you this has convicted me more than anyone else probably this week. I want to lead you um, effectively, well, with a heart seeking the kingdom of God and, and Jesus. Um, and there are temptations to do what's popular, temptations to um, ah, let's let someone else make a decision, or temptations to say, oh, God, here's how we want to do it. Now you bless us. <laughs> when what we need to do is seek the heart of Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I could have a good, easy Oh, here are three steps. They all start with the letter B, and here's how you do that. But I know this to be true for a fact. To follow and to commit to Jesus and be a part of the kingdom of God is a lifelong journey. 
it means taking up the, the word of God every single day, cherishing his message to us. It means going to the Lord in prayer every single day. Here are my desires. Here are my thoughts. Here are my opinions. And God will say, I receive those. And those are real cute. <laughs> but let me also tell you my will, God's will. It requires selflessness, caring and loving on others, putting others before your own desires every single day. It requires a heart that is generous, that is forgiving, that is patient every single day. These are the values of the kingdom of God. Wayne scripture that, we, uh, that he led us in this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 6. The love of money is the root of all evil. Passionately pursuing success and wealth and influence. There are values you must take on to be able to achieve those things. And within the kingdom of God, well, we have some other values. Again, generosity, selflessness, serving others. Can we commit today to continuing to seek out what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and to follow Jesus? Bow your heads with me. Lord, we come to you, and um, the temptations are great. Don't give up on us, Lord. As we seek to hold up our life like a ping-pong ball with our own breath, Lord, it will run out. (laughs) We don't have the strength to do this on our own. And so, Lord, would you prop us up? Would you carry us when we need to be carried? Would you drag us when there's no other way, Lord? But don't give up on us. Be patient with us, Lord. And fill us with your kingdom in such a way that it begins to change what our values are. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then, may we have the courage to forgive others, to serve others, to think outside of ourselves, Lord, and follow you perhaps all the way even to the cross if that's where you are leading us, Lord. Guide us and protect us on the way. We pray these things in your name. Amen.